Astronomy Cast, episode 514, Planetary Protection Protocols. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I'm doing great. Uh, although, hating technology, which was a conversation that we just had. That's just... it, it, it happens. Yeah. It, it evolves quickly and sometimes sideways. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I may sound a little different in my audio this time, and that's just because I've had to make some changes to the way I've got my audio, the way it's recording. I don't know if it's going to be better, worse. I guess we'll find out. Do you have anything to uh, shamelessly self-promote this week? Yes. Go to astrotours.co slash starstrider and sign up to spend late August, August 22nd through the 29th with me touring through the American Southwest, going to great observatories, seeing great landscapes, my favorite landscapes in the world. And hey, there might even be Vegas baby involved. So please, please go tour the countryside. This is where I spent my summers growing up. So there's going to be lots of stories to tell. That sounds great. All right, so as we send rovers and landers to other worlds, we have to think about the tiny microbial astronauts we're sending along with them. In fact, NASA is so concerned about infecting other worlds that it has established the planetary protection protocols just to be safe. Pamela, how on Earth or how in space is it possible for microbes to be a problem if we send spacecraft to other worlds. Some things do not want to die. That's the fundamental issue. Yeah. We we die easily. You put us in space, we die. Put a tardigrade in space, put any of a bazillion other extremophiles, microbes, bacterium in space. And they live on and on and on and just might choose to live on on another world where they kill any and all indigenous life. So do we have any examples of life demonstrating that space is no problem for it? Yeah, that, that tardigrade I mentioned. These, they also go by the name water bear. They are extremely cute. They kind of look like if you've watched the cartoon version of The Last Airbender, which is the only version you should watch. Right. They kind of look like Appa. Less for, for more sucky cuteness. Uh, but just like the tardigrade that appeared in Star Trek Discovery, they have the ability to push all the water out of their bodies, encapsulate themselves, and just stop respiration for a while. And in this protective state, they can withstand going to space, returning from space, being in space and then return quite happily to life when exposed to the correct circumstances. And then, of course, one of the other great stories is when the astronauts flew to the moon during the Apollo missions, they brought back the camera from one of the, from one of the landers uh, that had already been on the moon for a while. And what do you know? Bacteria. And they were able to revive it. 
But there is a bit of a controversy, so don't send me that email uh, that some people believe that it actually wasn't uh, life that had survived the journey, that in fact it had been re-contaminated uh, here on here on Earth. So it's a, there's a bit of a scientific controversy. But I like the one where it sounds like life can totally handle being on the moon and back. Me too. Yeah. So, okay, so we know, and but I mean, the point is, is like, they have done tests here on Earth, they've freeze dried them, put them in, put them in vacuum, they have made them cold, made them hot, radiated them, radiated them, uh, just insulted them. And they've been able, they don't die when you call them names. Yeah, they don't die. Yeah, yeah. Neither sticks nor stones nor names. Uh, so yeah, we know that bacteria and the, some of these tiny little life forms can handle pretty extreme environments. Okay, great. So what does that mean then? Well, that means that the world has been trying to figure out exactly how to handle this for quite some time. Uh, there was an original United Nations set of recommendations that, that were put together back in 1959. Uh, it's handled, it's governed by COSPAR. This is the Committee on Space Research. And in 1964, they issued a resolution. I'm going to read it here. This is Resolution 26. And it affirms the search for extraterrestrial life is an important objective of space research, that the planet of Mars may offer the only feasible opportunity this was written in 1964 mm -hmm. the only feasible opportunity to conduct this search during the foreseeable future the contamination of this planet would make such a search far more difficult and possibly even prevent for all time an unequivocal result that all practical steps should be taken to ensure that Mars be not biologically contaminated until such time as this search has been satisfactorily carried out and that cooperation in proper scheduling of experiments uh, and it goes on and on but what it boils down to is hey we have this planet Mars 1964. It's the only place we know of, because it was 1964, that might have life. Let's not send smallpox blankets. Um, right. It was it was understood that when Europeans came to the New World, we kind of like killed a lot of stuff, by which I mean lots of tribes of advanced humans with cool civilizations and writing and architecture and art and... We took yeah. them all off with disease. And, and, and not just yeah. disease. I mean, we're dealing with the invasive species. We're dealing with rats and uh, various kinds of plants and things that are really hard on our local environment, and they push out the, the local creatures. And that's the risk, is that you may go and find life on Mars, but it turns out you just found rats and, exactly. and Japanese knotweed. Or if you live here, stink bugs. Stink bugs, those are yours, yeah, yeah, yeah. Japanese stink bugs. Yeah, we have we have knotweed. I'm trying to think what our bug is. Th thistles, yeah, and, and uh, Himalayan uh, blackberries. At least those are tasty. Super tasty, yeah, 
yeah, I, I don't mind that invasion, but apparently the local plant life doesn't. So, so, so you can imagine some situation where we go and we go to Mars and we find, we do, we perform this enormous, difficult, complicated mission to get spacecraft down to the surface of Mars and the rover digs down and retrieves a sample and, and does some kind of experiment and finds that there is life there. And it turns out that it was just Earth life that had made it to Mars. And in fact, now Mars is filled with Earth life. And any Mars life that was there is now hard, harder to find. And, and so to try and prevent this fate, which you describe, they have, by which I mean COSPAR, the United Nations committees, NASA has signed on, have set out a group of different categories of missions that require per international treaty, cleaning at different levels. So for instance, if you're just doing what's called a category one mission, this is a flyby, an orbiter, or a lander on an undifferentiated, metamorphized asteroid or other such life not going to be here kind of object, you're good. Don't worry about it. This is where Bennu is going to go grab a rock. We didn't really put a whole lot of effort into sterilizing Osiris-Rex, but it's just a lump of rock. We're going to grab a smaller rock off of the bigger rock. We're going to bring it home. No one's worried. In the vastness of time, the ultraviolet light of the sun has killed everything. We're good. Right. So don't worry about sending a spacecraft. Don't, don't worry about how, how well you washed Osiris-Rex. You're not going to infect Bennu as you lightly pluck a rock off the surface of the of the asteroid and and then scoot back home. Exactly. So so these are the don't worry missions. Now, category two is where maybe you worry a little. This is flybys, orbiters, landers of objects that we really can't imagine how life might exist. So this is stuff like comets. Um, differentiated carbonaceous chondroid asteroids, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Um, these are worlds where probably we don't have life. Now, what's fascinating is when you look at older PowerPoint presentations about this, you start to see things like Titan listed here, uh, series listed here. These are objects that we're now realizing, oh, expletive, they just might have life. So we have to periodically update our PowerPoints. <laughs> right. There's, there's new place. In fact, when we look at Europa and Enceladus and, as you said, Titan and maybe even Pluto and Eris and Planet Nine when we find it and and the upper cloud tops of Venus and the permanently shadowed craters. Well, maybe not Mercury. Mm, probably not. Yeah. Probably All right. Not. So, so we've got a more rigorous cleaning. You've got to wash your spaceship a little better. Yeah, it, it's one of these things where you should take general care. They actually have guidelines in numbers of there's a sp specific bacteria that really likes to leave spores everywhere that they use as a tracing bacterium. Uh, so this is where everything is made in a clean lab. They wipe everything down with alcohol as they go. Um, but it's not a huge concern. 
Right, right. So they're 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 doing the best they can as they construct the spacecraft. They're trying to minimize the amount of bacteria that ends up on anything, but they're not losing sleep at night if they miss a few. Like there are absolutely going to be bacteria coming along for the ride. Just not as many as if you just built your spaceship in the in the garage and just and sent it to uh, out into space. And and so then as we continue down this list, we look at more and more dangerous situations. So as we get to category three, where now we're talking about flybys of things that could have life, Mars, Europa, Enceladus. This is where we, the way they phrase it is um, orbiter missions to a target body of chemical evolution and or origin of life interest um it's the opinion of the scientific body that every chance should every chance of contamination which could compromise future investigations be taken so basically if you might crash into it try to make sure that you're clean but it's the how clean you need to be in case you crash, not the how clean you're going to be because you're going to be running experiments specifically where life is likely to be. Right. So what I mean, an example of that might be something like Cassini, where it was intended to fly around. Or Galileo is exactly the right, right example to use, where they plunged it purposefully into Jupiter at the end of the mission. And that was planned because Europa. Right. So it didn't have the... Uh, it didn't have the level, like, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be going down and drilling into the ice on, on Europa and looking for European space whales. It was going to be orbiting Jupiter in an environment where under some weird combination of chances, it could end up smashed on the surface of Europa and somehow contaminate Europa. So might as well ditch it into Jupiter just to be safe. And and then we start getting into the, okay, we're going to think really hard about this because we're going somewhere potentially dangerous, but not worst casing it. So this is where you start having Category 4 lander missions on these worlds that just might have life. This is Mars, Europa, Enceladus. So here you bake it, you radiate it, you wipe it down, you hope you chemical um and one of the things that we're running into is this is where we have experience this is the viking missions the viking missions went to mars knew full well that they were looking for life that they didn't know if where they were landing could have life so what they did was they literally baked the spacecraft they put them in a fancy oven but oven raised the temperature up 115 degrees celsius above the boiling point and just baked them for hours wow and and the reason they did this was there was no life they could think of that could survive this baking this was early we now know better <laughs> then right we know better and, and this and, is, I mean, you know, just to digress briefly, this is sort of part of the problem is that there's all kinds of Russian or Soviet and even American spacecraft that are that are in all kinds of potentially sensitive locations or have just crashed onto Mars that had no cleaning done whatsoever. So if 
this was possible, then it's possible that we have already ruined Mars. It's true. But that's th- true. that's future exobiologist problem, not ours. And and so here we start worrying, especially with things like the Mars 2020. Uh, okay, so we're going there. We're going to be looking for life. We cleaned our spacecraft as well as we can. But processes like baking, those kill everything, but you could still be covered with dead life. And how is that going to affect our experiments? So we have to make sure that we don't just kill it all, but we remove the carcasses. Right. It's got really more of it really fast. It got really more of it really fast. And this is getting much more difficult to do. And the National Research Council here in the United States has actually put out a plan. It came out last summer where they called for scientists to rethink how it is that we define these categories, rethink what it is we use as our is this clean enough model and consider how do we deal with the fact that now we have instruments that we can't radiate because they're sensitive. We have things that we certainly can't heat up because they're plastic or they're made out of epoxies that will melt. How do we deal with atom thick films and detectors that really can't tolerate anything except for a good alcohol swiping. And as we develop more and more fragile and sensitive technologies, our ability to clean things goes down rapidly. So they're, they're working on trying to define new ways to clean things and this is now where we're arguing over things, but we haven't even gotten to the worst possible Yeah, the most scenarios. extreme one. And, and this is where we go and we grab a sample from someplace that could harbor life. This is, we send a rover to do the rover equivalent of walking up to one of those dark streaks on Mars. If they're real, I understand there's debate. Uh, grab a sample of dark soil and bring it home. This is where we go to Europa. We drill down. We grab some fluid. There is no plans to do this anytime in the near future. We bring it back. All these kinds of go forth, grab biologicals, maybe, and bring them home missions, these are the category five. They get um, shifted into restricted Earth return and unrestricted Earth return uh, based on on how hazardous hazardous these worlds are and you've got sort of a double problem right you've got the problem that as you dig into a a sample say you've got this really interesting salty brine that you find on on mars and you dig into it with your scoop uh to grab a sample to bring home you could be contaminating it with whatever earth bacteria is on the scoop and then you bring that material home and now you've got the risk of contaminating earth with whatever life with whatever material you found on mars so two planets are at risk now and and this is referred to as forward contamination where we take and we contaminate forward and backward contamination where we bring things back and in, in dividing up each of these categories, the, the categories really are what is the risk to the world and what is the risk for us? So category one is 
no risk because there's probably not life there and we're not bringing anything back. This is the flyby, the orbit, the land on boring space rocks. This is OSIRIS-REx at Bennu. Category five with the return missions still getting divided up where we're bringing back samples from the moon, which we're pretty sure is dead. So we're careful, but we're not, it's, it's not Andromeda strain we're worried about. <laughs> right. Whereas with those restricted Earth returns from Mars, Europa, Enceladus, it is exactly the Andromeda strain that we are worried about. Right. And I mean, we think about like how life here on Earth has evolved perfectly with this sort of mutual arms race. And so people wonder, like, you know, could you get infected by bacteria from Mars? Could you get a virus from Mars? And and it's I don't see that as being the big risk. You're going to you have not encountered it at all. It has no real pathways. Like even there's lots of viruses that have, you know, you can't catch viruses that infect insects because they've evolved to make, to find their way into insects, not into us. But, but it's that issue of, of having these life forms that can fill these ecological niches that we have that I, that it could be the bigger risk. When you think about some poor bacteria on Mars that's lived in brutal, a brutal environment, trying to survive near a perchlorate soil with ultraviolet radiation beaming down on it where the air pressure is low and all it has to breathe is carbon dioxide and you bring it to earth and it just goes like this place is a paradise compared to the horrible nightmare world that i used to live on well it may require perchlorates it may require a nightmare maybe, to live with maybe or you know was evolved to handle the most extreme environments we can possibly imagine but the point is let's not find out and the other side of this is, as we're sitting here saying maybe, the reason we say maybe is because the universe keeps proving itself to be more creative than we give it credit for. And and this has become a major argument where we have uh, people saying that since the universe likes to rain meteorites on our heads, cars, warehouses, and everything else, and these meteorites in many cases are coming to us from Mars, not every case, not a majority of cases, but frequently enough that even people like me have our own sample of Mars rock that came from a Mars meteorite. And the argument is that if all of these Mars rocks can come to Earth and we haven't died yet, do we really need to worry? And the National Research Council in pulling together top minds to think about this argument has basically said, yes, yes, we need to worry because these meteorites in general, while they're still raining on the earth, they were generated during a handful of collision events that occurred eons ago, probably during the age of the great heavy bombardment. And they've been floating around in space for a good long time before they hit our planet. They were essentially already baked, irradiated, frozen, melted, everything else. And then they went through our atmosphere. So that probably would have killed whatever was on them. But if we're going to these hasn't been blasted into space in a massive collision millions of years to billions of years ago, if we're instead just like digging in a nice briny mud bit beneath the surface, yeah. 
we may find that thing capable of killing us that we're not creative right. enough to know could be there. All I know is that we don't think of the consequences, the un, you know, we never see all of the unintended consequences. And if there's one thing that we can always predict is that there will be unintended consequences of, yes. of any action that we do. So like just like that alone, like I'm sure whatever terrible person brought scotch broom here to Vancouver Island. I thought it would be lovely to have a little piece of Scotland in their garden on Vancouver Island. Couldn't imagine this stuff just everywhere on our whole island killing everything. Like this is, it's exactly. the worst. And so it's just like, like, like I know your instinct is like, what's the worst that could happen? And the answer is, you don't know. Let's not find out. Let's just be careful. It's, it's just the smart move. Yes. It's always cheaper to prevent than to clean up. Yeah. So let's be cautious now and not kill yeah. everything later. Like, uh, this is a total uh, rabbit hole, but like, apparently now, like, you know, desalination plants, there's like tens of thousands of desalination plants that are dumping uh, toxic brine back brine. into the oceans and wiping out local. Uh, environments that's collecting down at the bottoms of the oceans and and causing problems to coastal habitats. We wouldn't have thought. We, we thought, well, the ocean is limitless. We, there's no way we could extract enough and return enough salt to cause a. Oh, turns out you can. And so your idea of like let's just grab all the water from the oceans. Actually, now we got a problem. So again, well, just unintended. Yeah. Con you know, we don't. I know I started this rabbit hole, but but just un the point being unintended consequences. So. Uh, so we've got, you know, we clean. What else can we do? Not crash. This, this is where we have problems. And, and this is where when you look at the categories, you have the categories that are for landing missions on Mars, Europa, Enceladus, category four. And then you have the category for flying and orbiting and Sometimes our orbiters don't stay up. Sometimes our flybys fly into instead. Um, so don't crash. Bottom line, just don't crash. Right. That's that's it. That's your plan is to plan on not crashing. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheaper. So Plus do you, you get more science? Will there be a time when these kinds of planetary protections are no longer required? Like, can you imagine some time in the far future where we have either found life or found no life to the point where like, okay, that's it. It's all dead and we just don't care anymore. This is where it gets tricky. If we find life, I want to believe, and I know I'm being a Pollyanna here, I want to believe that if we find that there is life of some form, that we will go, okay, we're good. We're going to watch this. We're going to let it advance. We're going to learn from whatever, go science. And we will limit our interactions to sealed habitats, go land on Phobos and not on Mars. I'm probably wrong. Yeah, super wrong. I mean, there's no I know, way. I know. There's no way that people like you imagine you get the astronauts living even on a science station on Mars, and they are living in their tunnels underground, regretting this research expedition, 
and but they're gonna but they're gonna want one taste of the sun and they're gonna put on their spacesuit and they're gonna walk out onto the Martian surface and just be shaking out microbes into the into the soil. So like and once we get serious about moving to living on exploring and what what are we now twenty twenty four we're only uh, five years away from SpaceX sending those first human colonists hundreds at a time to the surface of Mars he says sarcastically. And and the one, two things that gives me hope. Uh, the first is we're not going to get there by 2024. Uh, the second is in designing upcoming uh, rovers and spacesuits, one of the big new design concepts that they've been testing out with the Desert Rats program out in the desert is the spacesuits essentially are attached to the outside of your spacecraft. And the reason is to prevent dust and grime from getting into the spacecraft. So you slide down into your spacesuit and climb back up. A hatch closes in your helmet, sealing you in, and then you reattach yourself later. So the outside of your suit is never touched by you. It only touches the outside world. And the stuff on the outside of the suit never gets into your spacecraft. I'm hoping that as we create more and more of these novel designs, that we'll be able to reduce our interactions with the outside world. And we may need to take lessons from archaeology as well. It is becoming the norm that when we find new and awesome archaeological sites, we don't dig them up the same way that we used to. We instead use ground penetrating radar, we use MRIs, we use whatever technology allows us to look in yeah. without disturbing the samples. Yep. And hopefully we will figure out ways to do the same sort of remote sensing for life. Well, I I hope we get to this place in the future where it actually is a problem, right? Like that we do yeah. find life and we're like, oh, we're so glad we were careful. Or we, uh, or that we do bring samples back and we find life. Like, wouldn't that be the greatest thing? So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Pamela. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great, Fraser. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at Astronomy Cast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph.